If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of James, James chapter 4. If you're a parent, I'd imagine that different times in your life you've panicked, right? Okay, I'm not the only one here. And this, uh, this sensation of adrenaline just flowing through your body and just surging through your system always takes place when you have misplaced one of your children, right? Okay, now, it's just suddenly you're, you're, uh, you're at the store or maybe you're at the fair, you're in the park, and suddenly you realize I'm having such a wonderful time, I'm missing one of my kids. Where are they? You know, and, you're, and you start looking and you're like, and panic hits you. Uh, I've had this experience on several occasions, more than I can count. I remember the first time it happened, it happened in a store, and uh, I, didn't, I couldn't find my little daughter, and so I went to the front doors, and no one was leaving the store until I found my daughter, okay? Has any other guy done that? You know, you just, like, take over the entire store, right? Okay, I, I see I'm not alone. All right, so what happens is you, you've lost something of great importance to you, and life is not moving on until you find that little individual. Uh, for us, you know, Karen and I, we have, we have four kids, and so I, I think in terms of percentages now, um, for instance... And some of you have heard me, at, like, I'll say, well, I know where 50% of my children are, okay? And that means I don't know where two others are, or I know where 25%, or I am hoping that Karina knows where 100% of our children are at this time, because I don't know. Uh, one very memorable time of losing a child happened, uh, oddly enough, when we, Karina and I were flying from Portland, Oregon, to Waco because we were being interviewed for this position here at Fellowship Bible Church and uh, we were at our home in Beaverton and you know how it is when you're trying to pull all these things together and get your kids off to the grandmothers and and we were packing and moving like as fast as we could trying to get everything organized and suddenly our little two-year-old is missing there's Austin is nowhere to be found and so you know I'm like checking with my wife she doesn't know checking with my mother-in-law she's like what and like so you know I make this thorough search of the house I cannot find him I'm like we have to get going and so what happens is everything stops it didn't matter if we we're going to miss the flight we're going to be late I would have to drive at the maximum speed limit across Portland to get to the airport it didn't matter because we were not going anywhere until he was found after a thorough search of the house, I decided, you know, I need to do some wind sprints in my neighborhood. And so I did. I started running all through the streets looking for my son. And uh, after several tense minutes, I'd run up the hill and taken a left. And I discovered there he was. He's kind of was waddling his way. He had climbed up the hill. He was going on our normal path that we went for our walk. And I don't know if he decided that he needed to just stretch his legs or get a little fresh air before he went to his grandmother's or what, but he was on his way. We collected him, and uh, we were able to actually make our flight, and everything was fine. But, it, you know, it goes to accentuate this point. When something of great importance is missing in our life, we stop until it's in place and everything is where it should be. And we do that with your keys, right? Your wallet. Your kids, those things are missing, stop until we're not doing anything until I find my keys. I can't, I can't drive anywhere, okay? Until you find them and put them back where they're supposed to be, you don't move forward. And we do that with everything of importance except with one great exception, and that is with God and our focus upon him. It's a glaring exception, but we oftentimes treat God as he is nice, but optional. If he's in 
if we're focused on him, we're, that's great. But if we're not and we're just busy with our day, we treat God about the same level as like, it'd be sure nice to have my favorite sunglasses today, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to move forward anyway. And I know that I'm not alone to say that I am on a journey of learning to focus my heart and my attention upon God. You know, like it says in Psalm 20, 127, verse 1, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. I know I'm not alone on this journey of learning to put God at the center of my life at all times and in all decisions. I have a feeling we're all on the same journey. And yet, um, this is not a modern day problem. This has been an ongoing human omission to just fail to honor God and to seek God in the details and the decisions of our life. And why is that? Why do we just kind of plow forward with life? I mean, we just kind of wake up, we stumble around, we maybe go find some coffee, you just kind of put some clothes on, you just move to school, to work, and we just kind of plow through our day without really considering God, ever bringing our request before him, asking his will. What ha- why is that? Well, I'll tell you a couple of reasons. One, that's how we functioned before we came to Christ, Right? I mean, we weren't focused on God. We were out doing our own program. And so before you and I came to a saving relationship with Christ, we worshiped the God of self, our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own lusts. We did whatever we wanted to do. And we, some of us actually have experienced a lot of hardship and heartache in our life because of those decisions. And then God in his mercy and his grace, He not only alerted us to the great sinfulness of our nature, how we are totally offending God and sinning against him. But he awakened our heart to the beauty of the Savior and a realization that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. And that when we believe in him, we are forgiven. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we come to him as Lord, not someone like he's just like paying off like an insurance policy for us so that, well, we can just get into heaven if we just say, well, I believe that. But we come to him with everything we have. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God of our life. But before we were Christians, we did life on our own. And it's super easy to slip back into that MO. But let me give you one other reason why you and I can kind of just plow through life with our decisions and the details. It's that one word pride. We like to be able to say we did it our way and on our own. We pride ourselves in being self-sufficient. It is reinforced by our American culture. We like people who make quick decisions, who are strong, who are not indecisive, who have things under control, who can move forward, who can say, I'm going to do this, and they do it. And all that is 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 pride. And it has a serious effect upon our souls. When we come to James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, James, this pastor in Jerusalem, he's been identifying obstacles in people's lives, in our lives, that will keep us from having a strong, mature faith in Christ. And he's like a doctor. And he takes his stethoscope and he puts it right by the heart of this church. And he can tell there is something wrong. There is a hardening of the spiritual arteries that are taking place. And he can hear it. And it has to be addressed. And that's what he's going to do at the end of chapter 4. He is going to help us come to a point where we understand and know how to live a life that is, can be considered God-centered. You see, a God-centered perspective of life 
comes from doing this, by seeing God at the center of everything, that we see all of life related to him. But I have a question that I'd like to ask you today. Are you forgetting God in your present pursuits? Well, the people who are going, he's going to be addressing here were doing just that. In fact, look at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. James is bringing to mind a scene that is so very familiar. He is writing to believers, most of which were Jewish believers. They had come from Judaism and they realized that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, promised in the Old Testament, and he fulfilled the prophecies. And they realized and placed their faith in this Jesus of Nazareth to believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who truly could pay the penalty for their sins. And these Jewish people, very astute, were good businessmen, and they were oftentimes itinerant. They went where the business and the action was at. They moved from town to town to city to city. They went and made investments. They bought product. They sold them. They were very good. And this plan here, if you've ever been to business school, you know that they have a very good business plan written right here in verse 13. They talk about when they're going to do it, today or tomorrow. They're going to talk about what they're going to do and where they're going to do it, what their plan is, what the, what the whole idea is. They want to make a profit. It's all spelled out in great detail. There's only one huge glaring problem to their plan. They have forgotten God. They're living like practical atheists. These are Christian believers who are living as if God doesn't exist, or at least God doesn't exist in how they go about doing their business. And friends, you and I are very prone to act just this way, to do life on our own, make our own plans, write it out and fail to ever consider God. They are functioning like practical atheists. This is the M.O. of the world. And think of it like in our own life. How many times do we make decisions without ever consulting God? We make big ones about our future plans in our business with our families. There's folks that do this like with their retirement. They're, they're saving money, and that's, that's a great thing to do, save money. But it's all about, well, this is for all for us, and this is the fruit of our labors, and we're going to do it with everybody want with it. Or people work hard in their jobs, and they make all this money, but they think it's just, it's all about me, and it's about my money to do whatever I want to do with it. They see money as a kind of a symbol of independence, and like major decisions of their life, like where are you going to go to school, who you are going to marry, Are you going to make a job move? Are you going to move? Is your family going to move? Are you going to make this investment? They do it without prayer. And when we when we function like that, we, too, are functioning like practical atheists. And friends, it's not supposed to be this way. Let me give you two big reasons why you and I shouldn't be functioning this way. First of all, we were made by God. He is the creator and we are the creation he made us every single person god made he has the absolute right to say come and worship me i made you i created this universe for you i'm providing for you he created us we we belong to him by the fact that he made us but let me give you a second reason why 
All of our devotion and our attention should be upon him, especially when we make decisions. We've been redeemed. Did you remember? You and I, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were plowing forward in life. We, were, we did live life independently from God. We sinned. We followed the impulses of our body. And yet what God did, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we're yet sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. He paid the penalty in our place. And he rose again. And he is calling a people to himself that he has purchased with his own blood. We've been redeemed. Friend, if you are truly a Christian... You do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. You're you're his. You've been, according to Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He has marked you out as one of his. And one day that is going to be seen in eternity. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And we should be seeking God as to how he'd want us to live. Remember when Jesus was uh, told the story of a guy who was really wealthy, man, it was just all coming together. He made all sorts of money. In fact, his fields were so productive. He had all this grain. He's like, man, what am I going to do? I got all this grain. I know what I'm going to do. I want to tear down these measly barns that I got. I'm going to build even bigger ones. And I'm going to fill those barns full of my grain. And then I'm going to tell my soul, hey, you can chill out. You can relax and kick back for many years to come. You are totally provided for. Your soul can be satisfied in all the good things that you've done. And you remember what happened? Well, that night, the man died. And Jesus said, you know, you fool. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And who's going to own what you thought you owned? You see, so is the man who treasures up for himself treasures of this earth and not God. Friend, you don't belong to yourself. And the things that you have, you're merely a steward. And so the problem is, is that these people, they're approaching life as if God does not exist. And it's all about what they're going to do. I will do this. I will do this. I'm going to do this. It's really interesting. I'm going to say something that's going to be pretty startling. You know who says a lot of I will, I will do this in the Bible? Actually, Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, there is the recounting of what the star of the morning, this fallen star of Lucifer himself, of what he says in his heart. And listen to what he says. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the assembly on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. You see, it was all about him. I will. I will do this. When you hear this language of it's all about me and I will do this, you need to know that that's actually not coming from God. In fact, the next verse in Isaiah 14, 15, he says, "Uh uh-uh. Nevertheless, you're going to be thrust down to to Sheol and to the recesses of the pit. You and your pride and your arrogance... And you're what you're going to do? No, you're not. See, verse 14, he says, you know, why in the world would you even talk like that? Don't you even understand a little simple fact about life? Verse 14, yet do you not know what your life, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow? Do you? Do you have any idea? No, you are just a vapor, a mist, uh, just a little bit of, of steam 
It's like, you know, like on a cold morning, like, you know, like twice a year we might have here in Texas where you can go outside at six in the morning and you go and you can see just a little bit of steam and then it's gone. It just disappears. Your life is like that in comparison to eternity. It's just here and gone. You don't even know what your life will be like. It's you're so temporal. What in the world are you talking about life like this, about what you're going to do with no consideration of God? Forty years ago, uh, 1967, there was a uh, presentation made to one of the Senate subcommittees about what life was going to be like in 1985. And, and some of you have heard this because this made a lot of news. Do you know what one of the significant problems that they were thinking that they're trying to project in the future, kind of looking in their little crystal ball as to what life was going to be like for Americans in 1985 when they're back in 1967. And you know what thought one of, the, one of the major problems that they felt like we need to be addressing as a country is that what we're going to be doing with all of our free time. This was the presentation that was made before the Senate subcommittee. They said that, you know, they, they anticipated that people will be working just 22 hours a week or 27 weeks a year and could retire at age 38. What are these people going to do with all these free times? Because technology is improving and we're going to have all this free time and all these Americans, well, we're, we're going to need to have a lot of entertainment or something. Is that really what happened? No, but that's what they thought. And they're saying we need to be making and passing laws and moving our country in this direction. Friends, you have no idea what even tomorrow holds. And people that are running around saying that I'm going to do this or that, you know what they're doing? First of all, they're failing to recognize the existence of God's will for their life. But second, they're missing out on the benefits. I mean, think of it. You and I who know God and know Christ, we are in relationship with the one who has promised to work all things together for his good, according to his will, to those who love him. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's all powerful. He's omnipotent. He knows the beginning from the end. He is wise. He knows the best course of action. And at the same time, he is loving. He has a deep, unreserved love for his people. And when we follow him and turn to him and desire his will, we are desiring the very best of God himself. These people here, though, they're making plans without him. And James says, what are you thinking? You're you're making all these plans. You don't even know what tomorrow holds. See, friends, there's nothing wrong with making plans. There's nothing wrong with making investments, going out and doing business and doing it well. Friends, those things are good and you should do those things. The one problem that James cited here is that they were doing it without any consideration of God. They're functioning like practical atheists. And so James is addressing it and he's saying, it shouldn't be this way. Let me tell you how to live. You might want to put a mark by verse 15 or under underline it. Because he says, in contrast to this kind of godless way of living, you Christian, this is how you should be living. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If when we say this and mean it, It is a submission to God. It is a yielding to him. If the Lord, if he wills this, then we're going to do this or that. You see, part of the problem of living for the future, absent and mindful of yielding yourself to God in the present, is that you miss out on the present. 
you miss out on the blessings of the present time. You're, you're kind of caught in a trap of living for the future, and you don't even realize what God is doing in the present. And second of all, you may be missing out on what God wants you to do. Oh, I'm going to do business, and I'm going to be doing that, when God may very well have something he wants you to do at this present time, but you're so caught up in yourself and what the money you're going to make or your big plans or grandiose ideas that you miss out on what God wants you to do here and now. And there's something about coming to God and saying, Lord, if you are willing, that puts us back into the present and puts our heart back where it should be, trusting and yielding to God. Remember when Jesus was on earth, he said, you know what? I got one thing to do. The will of my father. He was so set and fixed upon that. And so he says, this is how we're to approach life. Verse 15, if the Lord wills we will live and also do this or that when what you're doing when you say if the lord wills is you are yielding it all to him it is in essence saying that god himself jesus himself is going to have to do this if the lord wills i live if god wants me to i'm going to go and pursue this plan or be able to do this or that but it's all up to him you see our orientation in life friends is to be God-centered, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered, if the Lord wills. And you and I, we can even have real good ideas like, you know what? I'm going to help these missionaries or I'm going to help this church build that next phase. I'm going to go make a lot of money and I can do it. I've got this plan. It's golden, man. And I seem to have the Midas touch. We can have plans for doing that or ministry or I want to be a person of influence or if I do this, I would have a significant influence for the kingdom. And we've got our plans and our ideas. But apart from yielding all to God, friends, we're kind of functioning like practical atheists. And you might want to check your motives. Is this really about God? Or is this really about you looking good? He says, you know how we should approach life? If the Lord wills. If God, who is all wise and all loving and all powerful, if he wills it, I'm going to live I'm going to be able to do these sort of things. But people kind of say in their heart, like, I hear what you're saying. I read that, but I don't know if I really want to do that. Because if I, if I give myself fully to God, I'm a young person, or I'm middle-aged, or I'm just about ready to retire, or I'm in retirement. If I, if I give myself fully to God like that, if the Lord wills, and I, I'm, I'm not just saying words, but I mean it, that could be difficult or dangerous. I think I'll do it on my own. I think I could do it better. I'll make it work. I'll do the church thing. I'll say the right things. I'll pray. But I want to run things my way. I don't want God to mess things up. Friends, you know where it's dangerous and difficult? It's not being in the will of God. It's being outside of it. That's where it's dangerous and difficult. It's dangerous and difficult when you refuse to yield yourself to the very one who purchased you and who made you. And so... The situation here is he says, you know how to live, verse 15? Say this. Instead, you ought to say, and these aren't just like words, oh, gotta throw that out there. I think God wants me to say that, and then I'll do my own thing. This is the expression of a heart. A man speaks from that which fills his heart. If the Lord wills, we will live. And we will also do this, or we'll do that. Now, when we talk about God's will, 
Some of you have known that you've actually violated what God has asked you to do. Clearly spelled out in his word, you flat out didn't do it and you knew it. Maybe you even taught a Sunday school class on the subject and yet you didn't. Or you knew that God wanted you to act in a certain way or do something for someone. Or, and it was, it was on your heart. God kept bringing it to your mind, but you chose not to do. Does it mean game over? You missed it. And you missed it, and God has now completely always put you onto the sideline. I think we ought to answer that question. Because I have a feeling there's probably about 70 to 80% of the people here that think like, Oh, I blew it. When I was 12, I should have done that. And ever since then, it's been, no. You need to know something. God is a loving father. He always wants you to walk in his will. He's gone to great effort to present it in his word. He has given his Holy Spirit to lead us in this course of life. And he has also told us this. If we confess our sin. Where is that? First John 1 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's merciful. He wants you to walk in the joy of forgiveness and relationship with his son. And he will guide you and direct you. And just because you and I have made a wreck of our life with some of our decisions does not mean it is game over. God is in the business of building with broken pieces. He seems to specialize in it. Of people that have just made a huge mess of their life, he brings them to a point where they're absolutely broken. They trust him and they come to a point saying, "Okay, God, I tried it my way. Voila, my current mess. I'm trusting you. Lead me and guide me. And God does. Yeah, you might live with some scars. Yes, there may be some pretty serious consequences, earthly consequences of decisions that you've made. They, they cannot be changed. But that does not stop God from working out his perfect will and work in your life. And friends, going with God the approach of Lord willing. This is the way to walk in life. There is such joy and deep fellowship when we're just when you can just get up in the morning or at any time of the day or right now and just say, Lord, I'm yours and I yield it all to you. Everything I've got. There's such a deep fellowship that comes. It is sweetness to your soul. It's like this is like honey to my life. It's sweet. It's where I was supposed to be. It's, it's what I'm meant to do. You may have noticed um, in letters that you've seen that are like, like over 100 years old. Maybe you're reading something like your grandparents wrote or you've, you've seen these old letters. And, and one, of those, one of the little postscripts you might find there that you may have not have understood, you might see these letters, capital B with a period and a V with a period. It may be written at the end of a sentence. Um, you might see it even at the end of a letter. It might be written in a corner, but it was like capital D, period V, period. And you're like, What's that? That's weird. I don't know. You know what that is? This has gone out of vogue, but it, it should come back. It's, it's, comes from, it's for Latin. It's an abbreviation for Deo Valente. It literally means if God wills, God willing, Lord willing. And so when people would write letters, we're into emails, when people used to write letters, if they were saying about a certain plan or they were going to go somewhere, they were going to, we believe that we're going to cross the Oregon Trail and make it to Oregon, they would, they'd write D-V, Deo Valente. If the Lord is willing, God willing, will do this. That's how we need to approach life. Deo Valente, whether you write it on your letter, it's got to be written in our hearts. 
It has to be the attitude of what of how we approach life. He doesn't say how many times you should say it or how you should say it or like every time you open your mouth, you should say Deo Valente. There's nothing. God is he's like, I want you to live with this principle. Whether you say it once a day or once a month or wherever, that's that is really not what he's driving at. He's driving at your heart, a heart that is completely yielded to God. And it's really interesting when you read through the New Testament. Look how many times there will be statements that will be made like they're planning on a missionary journey. Or I'm going to, Paul would write like, you know, I plan, I want to come back to you folks here in Ephesus. Or I'm going to go to visit the Corinthians. Or uh, one really interesting one is in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 3 where he's, he's talking about the, he'd like to see these people come to spiritual maturity. Okay, that is a great noble goal. And yet he writes, and this we will do if God permits. The idea is that God, you have to do it. Even the grand, great things that you've written in your word, like people coming to spiritual maturity in Christ. Deo volante, volante. You've got to do it. Lord willing. And so what James is addressing here is this huge problem. It's not that they had a business plan. It's that they were trusting in their plan and not their God. And what are you trusting in? Your finances, your future, tomorrow, Are you trusting in your plan or your God? He says, no, it shouldn't be that way. Rather, if the Lord wills. Now, when we talk about God's will, one question that just always comes up, and I'm sure it's surfacing in the minds of lots of you, is like, okay, how do you know God's will? Right? I mean, I really want to know God's will. How do you know? how How do we discern God's will on some of the specifics in our life when he doesn't give it, he gives us a lot of general principles of how to live. But maybe you're a single person here and like, should I marry this person? Or where should I go to school? Or should I take this job? Or should I move my family? And, you know, I read through my Bible and it doesn't tell me if I'm supposed to move to North Dakota or not. And I can just tell you, God's will is no. OK, don't move to North Dakota. OK, no, I'm kidding there. There's some fine people in North Dakota. I have relatives there. I hope they don't get the CD. OK. All right. How do you discern God's will? Let me give you some basic principles. First of all. You have to, at least from our perspective, you have to have a willingness to really want God's will. You've got to want it. There is a willingness to do God's will. Second of all, you have to realize that God's will is always going to be in harmony with his word. Okay? God has given us his word. He spells out how to live in our relationship with Christ. He has explicitly told us his desires. Oftentimes he says, and this is God's will. So we know like God's will to... Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, right? We know that that's God's will from 1 Thessalonians 5. We know from 1 Thessalonians 4, it is his will, verse 3, to abstain from sexual immorality. All its forms. Mental, physical, emotional. Spells it out real clear. It's God's will. We know it's his will to love one another, to forgive each other, pray for each other. We, he spells out his will. And so you need to know that God will never impress upon you to do something that is contrary to his word. God impresses upon you to forgive. If you think you're going to take revenge, you are outside of God's will. He's made it real clear. Jesus gave part of a sermon on that whole subject. So let me give you a third, though. In discerning God's will, we have to pray. We ask God for guidance. We, we're coming before him earnestly in prayer. We, Lord, I'm your, I'm your servant, and I, I really want your will on this. Should I marry this person, or should I go into this class, or this business opportunity? You have to pray and earnestly seek him. 
If you are not, you really don't want God's will as much as you say you do. And then the fourth one is, is you start acting upon the desires that God has placed in your heart in harmony with his word. And you move forward with the idea that God will guide you. And even if he desires, change your course of action. But you move forward. God is fully capable of opening doors and closing them. And so we who are wanting God's will, we're looking at and see, making sure it's in harmony with his word. We're praying by his spirit. We are moving forward. And that is how we experience it. It's kind of like if you want a great section in the Psalms on this Psalm 37 verses three through five. Just listen to what he says. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Are you trusting him and are you doing good? Are you actually doing what he's asking you to do? He says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. It has the idea that you're a faithful person right where God has placed you. Not clamoring after, I want to be someplace else or with someone else. No, be faithful where God has placed you. He says in the next verse, delight yourself in the Lord. You, are you finding your joy in God or, or in your circumstances or what you want or what you think you've done? Delight yourself in the Lord. And it says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The, the idea is, is that when you're truly delighting in God, it's, it becomes a way of life. His desires become your desires. And spending time being faithful and focusing on God and yielded to him has a way of changing your desires. I mean, think of it. Some of you have been Christians for a while now. See how God has changed your desires, things that you thought were so important at one time. It's all about money and success and climbing the ladder and being recognized. Now you realize, hey, it's all about knowing and walking in the love of God. And your priorities have changed from things to family and people. And so you dwell in the land, you cultivate faithfulness and it says he will give you the desires of the heart he says in the next verse commit your way to the lord trust also in him and he will do it but you've given yourself to him and so that's what he's asking us to do we commit our way to him but he says in verse 16 there's a problem you living life without god as a practical atheist this doesn't work anymore in fact He says, verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You're boasting in your confidence in yourself. And he says, all such boasting is, what does your Bible say? What does it say? Evil, sin. Did you notice he didn't say, well, it's not quite right, or you're just a little bit misguided? No, it's evil. And that word boasting has the idea of speaking loudly, being a loudmouth. Blabbing out what you're wanting, you're going to do. He says, you know, that all that behavior, that is evil. It's sin. It's one of the reasons Christ had to die. Our self-sufficiency. Remember what we learned last week? Hopefully everybody walked out those doors with this clearly impressed in their mind. James chapter 4, verse 6. God gives a greater grace, but God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble he is always opposed to the proud and pride wherever it is found but he gives grace the riches of our relationship with christ to those who are humble you know what boasting is boasting is in a cover-up to your weakness it is a cover-up to the reality that you truly don't have a foundation in god 
and not a healthy trust in him. You see, the most dangerous times in our life are when things actually work our way. That we can kind of look over our body of work, wherever that might be, in academics or our business or our athletics. And we kind of like, hey, I'm like Frank Sinatra. And you kind of sing, and I did it my way, right? And you really think, and there's something about, and there's like hairs going up in the back of your neck like, I did it. And I did it my way. Of course, you don't go public on that. But friends, that is so dangerous. Do you know why? Is that those sort of times that you've attributed your great successes not to God, but to you. And friends, he says, that is evil. Remember uh, when Daniel uh, was involved with King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4? The king had a dream, remember? And Daniel, high up, he'd already proven himself as God's man. The king says, i got this dream, help me out here. Daniel says, this is bad news, Nebuchadnezzar. King... Life is going to go real hard for you. You have a major pride issue. God's going to humble you. This is a huge warning from God. Well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar heard that. But then you remember what happened? Remember, he had finally gotten Babylon finished. His capital city, man. And he was standing on top of his little castle there. He was overlooking the entire city. And he was saying, you know, this city, Babylon, was built by my mighty power. And then he really let it loose. And he says, and for the glory of my majesty. And then all of a sudden, God brings his judgment. He brings his word to bear. And you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? All of a sudden, he started actually kind of like taking the form of an animal, okay? It was like he, it's like his body was drenched, it said, with the dew of heaven. And he actually started developing like these like feather-like substances on his body. In fact, for seven years, he groveled on the ground and he actually ate grass like cattle, just like God had said. For seven years, he became a resident in his own state park. While the country kind of ran on, the empire kept moving forward, his guards just kind of watched him as the king of Babylon grazed around like a wild animal. But after seven years of being humbled and God finally breaking through to this man and through his arrogance, and sometimes it takes something like that, doesn't it? Then his tune completely changed. In fact, you should read the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. And he ends with these great statements. He says, you know what? I get it now. And he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. No longer it's about me. And because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I know from firsthand experience. And I've written this down for the entire empire to know. And God had it recorded in scripture so that you and I will learn this lesson. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is it for you? You know, a lot of folks in America, they kind of pride themselves and it's, I did it my way. There's a guy by the name of William Ernest Henley. You've probably heard of him. You most certainly have heard of his most famous poem. It's called Invictus. Remember that poem? Invictus. Invictus is the poem, by the way, that was Timothy McVeigh. Remember the Oklahoma City bomber? His final statement, he wrote a handwritten copy of that poem. He turned this in. This is the last thing I want to say to anybody that cares to listen. He wrote up that poem in Victus, the one that ends, I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. 
Friends, that may be the world's M.O., the world's motto, but it is not to be the mindset of those who are followers of Christ. Think of it this way, friends. It's going to be humility one way or the other. Either we bow down before the Lord Jesus Christ in this earth and we truly recognize that him who died on the cross has risen as a conquering king and he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And we worship him and recognize him now in this life or we most certainly will in the life to come. Because in Philippians chapter 2, he says, every knee will bow. Every knee will recognize he is the absolute supreme authority. Whether they did so willingly and joyfully in this life or they do so out of complete submission in the life to come. But friends, it's going to be humility one way or the other. And so James says, you know what, verse 17, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. To him who knows the right thing to do, you know that I am meant to yield all of my life to him and you don't do it. We sometimes refer to this as the sins of omission. We just didn't do it. It's sin. You know the right thing to do. You chose not to do it. It's sin. It's pride run rampant in your life. You know, what happens when Christians deliberately disobey God? I'll just tell you a few things. One, when genuine Christians willfully disobey God, you're going to be disciplined. Hebrews chapter 12, you might want to read it. Hebrews chapter 12 God says this, I discipline and scourge every son in whom I receive. If you're a parent and you got kids, if you love them, you discipline them. If you don't love them, you just let them run wild and rampant, right? Because you could care less. You don't really love them. But if you love them, you discipline them because you want them to grow into maturity and holiness. Well, God is the exact same with his children. Friends, if you're plowing into sin and there is no internal conviction, nothing from the Holy Spirit, no believer come into your life and say, hey, what are you doing? you have real need to question whether or not you truly belong to him because he promises, I discipline those whom I receive. If you're out living in sin, you're doing absolutely wrong, and it doesn't affect you one iota, that's not the statement or the testimony of the Christian. That's the life of the non-believer. God disciplines us. He brings conviction when we go against his will. Remember uh, Jonah? God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. I called you to be a preacher, a prophet. I want you to go to Nineveh. Yes, I know they're wicked and evil, and I'm sending you there for a revival. Jonah's like, no way. I hate those people. They're evil. They have hurt my people. I want nothing to do with them. I don't want them to have one iota of grace or mercy. So what did he get? He got in a ship. He went the exact opposite. He headed east. God said, I want you to go west to Nineveh. It's like, no way. I'm in my own little boat. You know, and he did his whole thing. He's, and they got in that big storm. And you remember what happened. God has a way of bringing his people back to where he wants them. And he came back. He was a little uh, discolored by some of the gastric juices that he absorbed for three days. But he got spit up back on that land, and he was clear of one thing. God is in charge, and he was one of his. And then God said, I got this idea. I think I want you to go to Nineveh. And he's like, okay, I think I want to go to Nineveh too. And he did, rather reluctantly. But he learned the lesson. Have you? Friends, I don't want you to get all regurgitated and spit up upon and have your skin change colors and all that weird stuff. But friends, he will discipline those whom he has received who are in rebellion against him. Let me tell you something else we lose. We lose earthly joy when we will not go with God and his will. And we also lose heavenly rewards. 
Friends, you got some real good ideas of things that you want to do. I'm sure of it. It can even be about ministry. Things that you want to even do in this church, in this community, in this state, in this world, whatever. But if you are not yielding them fully up to the Lord and say, Lord, if you will, I'll live and do this and that. Friends, you've missed it. We got to hold our dreams and our desires and what we want loosely and with an open hand. Yielding it all to God so that he will direct our ship so that we can always look and say, hey, whatever good is going on here, let me assure you, I know it's of God. A God-centered perspective comes from seeing all of life related to him. Many of you are familiar with this man's uh, little financial empire, uh, and you're very familiar with his stores. Howard E. Butt better known around here as H-E-B, right? Yet he was an extremely successful Christian businessman. He wrote an article once called The Art of Being a Big Shot. Now, let me, let me just, you know this little grocery store? He was the youngest son. He took over a little family grocery store. He's turned it into one of the largest food chains in the United States. Do you know the largest privately held company in the state of Texas? Do you know what it is? It's H-E-B. And he was the guy that really was the one that, created this huge empire. So he writes this article, The Art of Being a Big Shot. And he obviously spent a lot of time in the verses that we've just looked at. Because listen to what he says and let's think about how similar it is to James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. In his article, he wrote, quote, It is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate. And that I run my own life and call my own shots and go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. And I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. And then he goes on to write, it's not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself. And that is the national religion of hell. Friends, what we need, we need people with a vision of seeing God at the center of all things. And that means what we will yield to him. We will say it. We might write the postscript DV, Deo Valente. But that is the story of our life because we understand that a God-centered perspective comes from seeing all of life centered and focused on him. Let's pray. Lord, Once again, we've had another sacred moment as we've gathered together and you have so clearly spelled out in your word that which you desire for us. That we would not walk around as practical atheists making decisions here and there, big and little, with no consideration to you. And Lord, all of us are guilty at one point or another of doing just that. But you've got our full attention now. And so, Lord... We confess the sin of pride and of ignorance. And Lord, we we desire to go your way.
we agree with you that living life based upon what we want and how we want it is simply not of you. Lord, we want the testimony of our life to be that you have done it all. Lord willing, you will give us the ability to accomplish what you've asked. And so, Father, for those who have gathered here today who have never put their trust in you, and they realize that the I wills of their life truly show that they have not received your son, but they just pray with me and say, Lord, you know all about me and my sin and my pride and my arrogance. Father, I confess it before you as sin, and I turn from my sin and trust your son as my Savior and my Lord. And Lord, would you have your way in all of us? Would we live differently as a result of your Holy Spirit working and flowing in our lives to bring you great glory? We ask according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.